Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guests are all associated with the fifth episode of South Carolinians in World War II. John Rainey, who's executive producer, Jeff Wilkinson, who's a reporter for the state and the producer of the show, and Wade Sellers, who is its director. We're going to discuss the whole series, how it began, but this particular episode, which is sort of a segue between the European theater and the Pacific theater, specifically the importance of Pearl Harbor and its impact on Americans at home, in Hawaii, and in Europe. I'll have that conversation with these gentlemen, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the SCANA studio today are Jeff Wilkinson, who's a reporter with the state and the producer of South Carolinians in World War II. We also have the executive producer, John Rainey, and the director, Wade Sellers. We're going to talk about the fifth episode in this wonderful series about South Carolinians and the greatest generation. This particular episode will be aired on November the 8th on South Carolina Educational Television. Wade. This is really a segue from Europe. The first four episodes all dealt with the European theater, but now you're going to switch to the Pacific, and you do it in a pretty interesting fashion. Yes, a lot of the veterans who served in Europe, um, when VE Day arrived, uh, they were were very happy, they were celebrating, but in the back of their minds, they knew about the war in the Pacific, and so... We have a few of our veterans who, you know, although being happy that the fighting in Europe was over, knew that there was a chance uh, that they were destined for more war. All right. And, and I think for our younger listeners out there, we need to say VE Day was Victory Europe Day. Yes. That they might, they might not remember. I mean, I was growing up in VE Day and VJ Day, Victory Japan Day, were on the, actually on the calendar. Uh, I know John Rainey grew up that. I did. I remember that. Um, You make that transition to the Pacific Theater. And obviously when you think about Pacific Theater, you start off with Pearl Harbor. John? Well, that was the beginning of the beginning, as we all know. And um, that's the day that we'll live in infamy. Uh, We were stabbed in the back. The Japanese negotiators were in Washington at the very time, uh, talking peace. Um, and then all of a sudden, we were at war. And uh, that probably took America from being a very naive, insular country into the real world. I think that was the shock that brought us into the real world where, in international politics, we found out there really was no morality. It was all about power. I remember Secretary Stinson, who was a secretary of uh, war or state under Roosevelt. He expressed dismay when he found out that people actually read other people's mail. <laughs> uh, and and that, was, that was the world in which we lived prior to December 7, 1941, when we would have a secretary of war say that he was surprised. Yes, gentlemen didn't read other gentlemen's letters. Gentlemen just didn't do that. Uh, And and gentlemen didn't attack people without first sending them a letter saying, guess what, we're going to wage war against you. Even though in Europe it had already happened. It had already happened. The invasion of Poland. And also, people don't don't remember that in December 1941, we had a huge segment in the American population who were isolationists. They wanted Europe to stew in its own juice. That was not our fight. But Pearl Harbor changed all that. And one of the things that you can ask, and the veterans talk about it, those who were there, and just people from that generation, they can tell you what they were doing on December the 7th, 1941, when they heard it. And usually it was over the radio. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further development. My wife and I were visiting my parents. I turned the set on and tuned into the amateur frequencies. And I heard a man talking there. He said, there's a fellow on there saying that the Japanese 
are bombing Pearl Harbor. They should take that guy's license away for spreading information like that. We were down in a boxing ring. Suddenly this one fellow from the company came down to the area we were in with it around this boxing ring. Hey guys, Pearl Harbor's been attacked. And the obvious questions everybody was asking, where is Pearl Harbor? Now, one of the great things we we realized early on was um, two of our two of the veterans we interviewed very early, uh, Russ Miney and Robert Mills, both were at Pearl Harbor the day it was attacked. They had both been out late the night before. They were both having breakfast at the same time, and through their interviews, we realized that they were in the same dining hall at the same time, and have no idea, have never met each other, but gave basically an exact account of what was happening outside their doors. And the common link were the, uh, i say nicely, the complaints of the cook in the dining hall about <laughs> all the explosions knocking the pots and pans off the walls in his kitchen. <laughs> and from that, we kind of, you know, realized this is a common thread through the eyes of a lot of the people that were there. And that's what we utilize in this episode. The sergeant in the mess hall was just throwing a fit because pots and pans were falling off the wall and there was explosions going on outside. He said the Seacoast batteries are supposed to be fired on Monday, not on Sunday. This is Sunday. They don't know the difference. The artillery was about two blocks from our house. We were used to hearing that. We were hearing, you know, machine guns. We were used to hearing the planes flying over. It was about seven in the morning, and I saw these Japanese planes coming through Coley Coley Pass. They came in and went right down on the ground. I saw an airplane come right above my house. I looked up, and I saw the face of a young man in the airplane, an Asian with a close-fitting cap. I was waving to him, really. I thought it was some of our pilots until I said, Jim, these are funny-looking planes. They've got orange circles on the side. They had torpedoes on the bottom of them. And I said, my Lord, those torpedoes are as long as those airplanes. He said, yeah, and that's the Japanese insignia up there, too. And I said, they can't get here from Japan with airplanes. You know that. They can't do that. He said, I don't care what they can't do. They're here. We also have two women uh, that were at Pearl Harbor. One, Lois Goforth from Aiken, who was a young, pregnant wife and uh, Pat Kirby, who lives here in Columbia, who was a 16-year-old girl at the time. Uh, they both told the same story as well about being evacuated to an elementary school uh, just outside of Pearl Harbor, and they'd never met each other. They don't know each other, and it turned out through our interviews that they were in the same elementary school together. Uh, so we have four people here in South Carolina who were in Pearl Harbor who had the same experiences. And uh, it, it, it's kind of magic when you get that. And, and as filmmakers, uh, when, when you get those two perspectives of two people that have that shared experience uh, in our state but don't know each other, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I'm sure once the program airs, we're probably going to find some more folks who can make those connections. Son to John Drummond who, as we all know, was one of our heroes uh, in the European theater, was uh, at Fort Moultrie on December 7, 1941, when he heard the news over the radio along with a bunch of other fellows that were standing there. And somebody asked, uh, when they heard P Pearl Harbor was attacked, who is she? <laughs> and that pretty well tells it. In terms of Pearl Harbor, one of the most graphic accounts that I have ever read of people hearing the news comes from Ben Robertson, South Carolina writer, Red Hills and Cotton, one of my all-time favorite books. And he talks about somebody heard it on the radio, and then the neighbors in that valley, the 12 mile, began to visit one another. And all of the young men, and this was black and white, went into the fields and looked up to the mountains. And it's almost a paraphrase of the 121st Psalm, and they talked about how in the past they had always looked to the hills for help from ancestors going off to fight the revolution, to fight the Yankees, to fight adopting the Constitution. I mean, it's, it's a very, very moving, powerful piece. 
And I, I say that because you he was a big Clemson man, and you use Clemson as part of this, the Tigers go to war as part of this particular piece. Tigers to the fight, yes, indeed. Uh, during World War II, Clemson was a military university, military and agricultural university. It was all male, and uh, and every uh, and every student uh, had to wear a uniform, get up and do drill. Well, when I finished high school at Chapin in 1940, Dad, Dad, Tabby said, I'll send you to Clemson if you want to go. I said, well, I ain't had no money for 16, 17 years. I think I'll go get me a job. So I looked around and found a job the carpenter's helper for 15 cents an hour. And I come back and say, I think I'll go to Clemson. Clemson, it was prideful that the service flag that flew in the chapel showed more men serving from Clemson than from any other school in the United States as officers in the U.S. Army, any other school other than West Point or Texas A&M. We all felt that we were going to have to go to war sometime sooner or later. And uh, Clemson uh, was a better place to go to because you come out of there and you are, are sort of military oriented. In our first episode, we did a, a, a little segment on the Citadel. And in this one, we also have uh, a segment on Clemson because um, really the two institutions were a lot alike back then. Yes, as an A&M university, and Clemson wasn't the only one that still had military at that time. Most of the A&M schools across the country did. Some abandoned the military requirement earlier, and Clemson kept it till after World War II. Well into the 50s, because I remember it as a boy growing up in Anderson. It was a military school until well into the 50s. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons, and I don't know if it's in the episode, that they stopped were the... Uh, as enrollment declined after World War II, they realized that the students didn't want to take military at the college. And once they dropped military and then added or allowed women to enroll in the university, enrollment skyrocketed and it became the institution it is today. Well, as we talk about the war, and John Rainey mentioned it earlier about the naivete of, of Americans in 1941. I think it's interesting, as as you have been, Wade, if you've talked about the young people you've had associated uh, on your crew, young Americans today know as little about World War II as they do about the Revolutionary War. And why don't you talk about how these young people have all of a sudden really rediscovered a part of our country's heritage that they didn't know anything about? I think a lot of it comes, too, from me, because one of the omissions, I guess, I give is that when Jeff, almost three years ago now, approached me about this project, I was a little cynical about taking it on in that I felt you know, that really, what, what, why does the world need another documentary about World War II? You know, and you can turn on the channel at any time and see it, or see one. After the first interview, I got it. Um, and as we went forward... Uh, and I was editing the programs together, I would notice uh, in the office that I started the work in this, you know, I didn't have a closed door and there would be people from time to time walking by, a lot of kids uh, walking by and they would stop and listen. I mean, I would be facing the screen and turn around and there would be a couple of people just standing at the door listening to a story like Lou Fowler um, or, you know, Robert Mills or anyone talking about what they saw. And as we increased uh, the number of veterans that we interviewed, uh, we brought on interns and then our production manager, Mary Cruz, uh, she continued to work on it. And, you know, they're very young and they are enthralled by the stories that they hear. I mean, and it's beyond just 
a new experience for them. I mean, these they really take to heart the experiences that these veterans are sharing. And I know, John, you've said this before. It's one of the reasons that you personally got involved is because we are losing so many of these these veterans. De- literally, World War II veterans are dying daily. And before we went on the air, Wade says, do you know anybody who was at Guadalcanal or Iwo? Well, Jack Sprout, who for many years was chair of the history department uh, at Carolina, was as a young Marine. Yes, he was in Iwo Jima, but Jack died a few years back. So, I mean... Getting these stories now, we're literally losing first-person accounts of a very important part of American history. Yeah, the first-person aspect, I think, is what appeals to uh, to young people as well, because it's not dates, and it's not battles, and it's not generals. What we do is go into these uh, gentlemen and ladies' houses, and it's like sitting down uh, at your grandfather's knee and listening to them tell their personal stories. And that that's very engaging because it is so personal. And I think that's what makes uh, uh, our uh, series maybe different from others. Uh, we don't use narration. Uh, we just let the vets tell about their experience. And when we edit them together... Uh, you get more of a feeling of the total experience of what this, these people went through through those individual personal stories. And their personalities shine through, too. I mean, you know, not everybody was, um, for lack of a better word, you know, this superhero soldier. I mean, you went in and they all had their reservations and they all had their motivations. And by showing and sharing these stories, I mean, you hear in their voice and how they tell each experience, you really get a feel of who they are. And then once you, you know, edit them all together, you get a true feel for, well, this is a group of men made up not of the standard poster picture of the soldier we see, but real people experiencing something that they had never experienced before. I mean, this really was in terms of South Carolina, but most of America, this was small town America going to war. I mean, this state was predominantly rural, and you've got young men uh, coming off the farms, coming out of the out of the mills, going off to uh, all all points of the globe, literally. In this case, to the Pacific, which is it was not that it was a secondary theory, but particularly our ally in England wanted to take care of Europe first and the Pacific. And John, you know this story very well. This was that was not Churchill's first first interest. No, and I I think maybe we talking about our series and why we're doing it and how it takes its form. Um, Studs Terkel wrote a book called The Good War, which was an oral history of World War II. And what he did provides provided a template for what we're doing with the video. Um, because it's like Wade said, people went into this war with all kinds of different notions, all different degrees of enthusiasm, all different concerns as to the part they would play and how they would feel about it. And in the good war, Turkle addresses all of this. And we get back to how can a war be good? Mm-hmm. Well, there were some people, especially early on, who really thought it was a good war. There were some that thought it had no good parts to it, and there were some that vacillated. All of them then went to war, though, mm-hmm. and they all did their duty by and large. So the question is, what is a good war? Well, I think Turkel concludes, and we will probably conclude when we finish this, that in an overarching way, it was a good war because it was an essential war. We were at a tipping point, and we were either going to fall into the abyss of darkness, or we were not. And it was essentially a struggle between good and evil and light and darkness, and I think that's what Turkle conveyed, and that's what we're conveying with the video. And, of course, again, young people not knowing, in fact, a lot of people, not just young people today, in war, you sometimes, like politics, have strange bedfellows. And the United Kingdom and the United States, their major ally was the Soviet Union. And a lot of people forget that. And if you look at, at the, uh, 
the newsreels produced at that time, Joseph Stalin, one of the great dictators, sinister people of, of the era, of the world, history, is depicted as Uncle Joe, you know, our ally uh, in Europe. Forget about the fact he's just killed 10 millions of his own people in purges and what have you, but we need him on the, on the Eastern Front to keep the Germans occupied. Well, the Russians saved us in two world wars. The Eastern Front took the pressure off the Western Front right. and diverted, I don't know how much of Germany's resources, but a substantial amount to fighting a two-front war, which is never a good idea. In this episode, we have a couple of veterans, uh, as we're finishing up Europe, talking about how the Germans really did not want to surrender to the Russians. Uh, we even have one guy tell the tale of, of the Germans building a bridge across a river so the Americans could get to them before the Russians actually got there. Well, they knew if they were captured, they, was, they were going to the gulag. I mean, they were going to be, uh, if they weren't killed outright, they were going to be put into slave labor camps in the Soviet Union. I mean, that was... Payback time. Payback. Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, and the accounts of German civilians, particularly women, what happened with the occupation of, of Berlin are pretty horrific. One of the things that's interesting, kind of going back, touching on what John said, that no matter what each soldier's motivation was or feelings about the war, when they began serving, almost with the progression of each episode, the further into Europe they get, the closer into Germany, and then eventually, with the last episode, into the concentration camps and liberating the POW camps, the stronger their bond is to accomplishing the goal of defeating Hitler and his army. And I think it was in our last episode where we had Moffat Burris, and he actually did a special with Moffat Burris, too. And his description of the liberation of that concentration camp is, mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who has heard or seen that that has not been emotionally moved by that description. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, we've started a second series. Uh, we really don't have, we have so many veterans. We've interviewed 150 veterans so far. And for the main series, South Carolinians in World War II, uh, we use a lot of them. There are 34 veterans in this particular episode that's, that's airing. And so we felt we needed a vehicle to really uh, spotlight some of our, our, our quote-unquote special veterans. And uh, the, the, the movie that you're speaking about was called uh, Man and Moment, Moffat Burris and the Crossing. We have another film that's coming out on Colonel Charles Murray, who uh, a North Carolina native who lived here in Columbia until he passed away earlier this year. He was a Medal of Honor recipient. And uh, we're currently working on a on a film called Man and Moment, uh, Charles Murray, Defining a Hero. And it will air on uh, December 13th, I believe. And uh, we really thought that we needed a way to spotlight uh, these individuals who, who in, a, in the greatest generation, they were the greatest of the greatest generation. Okay. Now, that, that brings me up to the point. When this started off, John, you and Jeff were looking at doing a one-shot, one one-episode, right? You weren't planning on a multi-part series. We weren't planning. We just were going to do it. There was no grand design. Um, as, as you remember, this all got started in 1999 mm -hmm. uh, after I read The Greatest Generation. And the series started out, um, I wanted to call it The Vanishing Generation. And we did have some production that uh, was entitled The Vanishing Generation. But when Elaine and I sat down in Brook Green Gardens after that meeting one day in 99, and I said, we've just got to do this because And, and you're talking about Elaine Freeman who headed the ETV, ETV endowment. endowment. That's right. And I said, we've got to do this because so many of these people are in their 70s <laughs> where we are now. Uh, Speak for yourself, Speak John. for yourself. Well, you're not there yet. Well, I am. I got one more year. Okay. Well, I'm there. Well, so many of these people were in their 70s, and we don't have but a very brief opening here. Well, it took 10 years before I really got back to this, and I got back to it in 2009 because I saw what Jeff was doing with the free, uh, honor flights. And I called Jeff, and I said, Jeff, 
these these people are now in their 80s and some in their 90s and we've got to get back on this. Will you do it? Mm-hmm. And it was just open-ended. And he said, well, what is our budget? And I said, well, you won't run out of money. Mm-hmm. And and so we've gone from the first interview to now 150 and we have no reason to stop. Um, I don't think we can stop. We've talked about there being two segments on the Pacific Theater, I don't think so. I mean, we've got to get to Burma and India and China, and we've got, you know, so much to do. Uh, and see, again, those folks have, and in fact, today, literally today as we're sitting here, Jeff, Victor John, one of your honor flight veterans, passed away yesterday. Um, I can't recall the number. How, we've done 150 interviews. How, Wade, how many guys have we lost since we started? I think the number is 13. I know in this episode, there are, uh, we've lost more veterans in this episode. So you had 34, and so you're losing. So far, you've lost about 10, 11%. Are you? That's yes. Right. That's you know. about right, 10%. Um, and one of the things, you know, we always say is, you know, we wish we could have interviewed these gentlemen sooner, but one of the things we realized is nobody, a lot of these gentlemen weren't sharing their stories sooner. I mean, it's just in the last. 10 years that they've really opened up. And when I say open up, I mean telling the stories, the true in-depth first-person accounts. I mean, they have told stories to their kids and grandkids over the years, but really haven't shared those moments uh, they deemed appropriate. Well, that's, you know, that's true for a great many World War II veterans. I I know uh, we have a mutual, all of us have a mutual friend, Jim Hammond, uh, whose father was with the 8th Air Force. He never told him. And the only time Jim found out about what his father had done in the war was after his father died, he had access to the letters that his father had written his mother. And it's quite a story of a, of a young man, again, from the upcountry who goes to war, learns to fly an airplane, and is involved in those incredible bombing raids over Germany in the last two years of the war. And, he, and uh, Jim wrote a book called Tom's War. That's right. But he had never, John, he had, his father had never told him about what he did in the war. And I think that's true for a lot of World War II veterans. I mean, the late Judge John Grimble was one of the great heroes of the war. I worked right next to a fellow named Mike Chester uh, in my capacity as general counsel at the Ben Arnold Company. And Mike was assistant to the president down there. He taught at the university, did a lot of things, and I never knew until the very end of his life, it literally as he lay dying, um, he jumped four times in Europe. He had four stars on his parachutist badge. They were called Four Jump Bastards, and he, he, he was one of a very few that ever did that and survived, and it turned out that, that Mike... Uh, was interviewed by who wrote The Longest Day? Cornelius Ryan. He interviewed Mike because at, and I found this out near his death and it was confirmed by a general officer who was at his funeral and with whom we visited afterwards. He said Mike was the first American into Europe on D-Day. Mike led a Pathfinder unit, dropped into Normandy, staked out the landing zone, Landed in the right place, and that that in itself, and the and the the between the parachutes and the gliders, that didn't happen very well, often. The, and that was the problem. He landed in the right place, and he told Ryan, and I didn't fire a shot all day. He wasn't in the book because it wasn't interesting. He ended up he put put his unit where it was supposed to be on time, and didn't fire a shot all day because he was where he was supposed to be. And so that was not a really interesting story. And if you look in the pictures in the book, The Longest Day, there is Mike Chester, whose office was next to mine for years and never said a word, sitting in the door of a C-47, ready to go. So there we go. Yeah, you talk about the heroes among us. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, heroes it, among us. Absolutely. Uh, there, there's a gentleman named Ted Bell who lives here in Columbia. Most people don't know who he is. Who he is is the most decorated soldier from the Citadel in World War II. He won the Distinguished Service Cross. 
which is one step down from the Medal of Honor. Charles Murray, who I spoke about earlier, uh, they were friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, they always joked that uh, Charles Murray was hero first class and Ted Bell was hero second class. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ted lives over on Senate Street here in Columbia, and he's in this episode of the film. He On Okinawa, he led a company of 225 men up uh, Ashimi Ridge, held it for three days until relieved, and came back down the hill with 22 of his men left. Mm. And, uh, and to see Ted, you'd never know. I mean, uh, he, he lives here. He's very quiet. He doesn't go to veterans' meetings. He doesn't give speeches. Uh, he's just a, a, a very nice, very gentle man. And uh, to get to know people like that, that, that's part of the joy of the job. You would never know this man was a hero, and he is. He, he is no longer with us, the late Donald Young from Orangeburg, but he grew up in Nice, his Wofford graduate in Italy most of the war. Uh, because of battlefield promotions, he was a lieutenant colonel, battalion commander, by the time he was in his early 20s because of people getting killed and he would get get the job. And he was wounded. And if he had that wound. Obviously, he walked with a little bit of a limp for the rest of his life. Uh, but he, he used to say, I'm just a country boy from Nieces. And he had great leadership potential. In fact, he actually had originally had a battlefield commission. He was an enlisted man. Gentlemen, I think we need to take a pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with John Rainey, Wade Sellers, and Jeff Wilkinson about the latest episode of South Carolinians in World War II. Gentlemen, this is the fifth episode of South Carolinians in World War II. It's hard to ask who is your favorite interview, which is the interview that really grabbed you the most. Now, I'm going to go around the table and start that. Start with you, John, of the 34 that are in this particular episode. And if you can't narrow it down to two or three, I mean, obviously all of them are great, but there's got to be one that really touched you. I think Ted Bell. Okay. And you want to talk a little bit more about, since he was the most decorated citadel? Well, it's, it's like Jeff said, he's an incredibly self-effacing man. He's a consummate gentleman. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't talk at all. He doesn't need to embellish his war record. And to hear he told the story in detail in an earlier episode. He said it really didn't hit him when he came back down the hill with the 22 men until he ran into his mess sergeant who had coffee and donuts ready for a full company. And he said he just, that's, that was the, the, the moment in time when it all hit him the horror of the whole three days, mm. and he broke down in tears. Mm. Wade? I've been on the vast majority of these interviews with Jeff, and um, I've been through, I think we have about 400 hours of interview footage to this point, but the one story that I keep coming back to is uh, Lou Fowler of Columbia. His story um, originally... I remember Jeff and I talking. I mean, he was a waste gunner in a B-29. He was shot down over Yugoslavia and essentially fell out of the plane and uh, passed out just before he released his parachute and then eventually was uh, held as a POW in German prison camps, witnessed the atrocities of the Holocaust, um, and then escaped with four other prisoners uh, I think about a week before their camp was liberated. Only because, and that sounds a little ironic, but I mean, it's because they feared the Germans were just going to, in mass, kill all the prisoners. Originally, Jeff and I, the story is so long, and um, we didn't know where to fit it, and then we just ended up using it as sections throughout every episode. And we finish his story in this episode. The Germans were completely surrounded. So we knew that it was a final battle and that the Germans were never going to give us up because they couldn't negotiate peace terms with Americans. 
So the four of us devised a scheme. This uh, American who could speak German, Wisconsin guy, went up to this German guard and started talking to him in German. And the other guy was with him. And then the other two of us flipped around and killed the guard with his own bayonet and dressed this American up in the German uniform. And it was night. And he started marching us rather than running like you would think when you want to escape. He marched us right through the other German guards and we took off. We didn't know which direction to go, but we wanted to go west. It was dark. So we jumped down in this ravine and we heard this tank. We thought it was a tank coming and we didn't know whether it was German Russian or who's or American time. But we start hollering, American, Joe Lewis, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle. We heard this voice. What the hell was that? Joe Lewis, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Jody Maggio. And the guy said, Who are you? And we said, American prisoners of war. Come out with your hands behind your head. Take all your clothes off. Don't turn around. Don't open your mouth. So I took all my clothes off. Hands behind my head. Beard down here. Haven't shaven. This American came around and looked at us. Damn, you are Americans. That was the greatest day of my life. My freedom. My freedom. I've gotten to know Lou very well. I've been to a lot of uh, events with him. And he is just, again, heroes among us. A gentleman you would never think. He's always got the biggest smile in the room Mm -hmm. and he is uh, as kind a person as you'll ever meet and you would not think uh, that this is a man who was beaten and tortured by Germans for a year and a half in World War II okay Jeff you're asking me to pick between my children here I I, I understand and and you know uh that that is the one gotcha question that I, I don't believe in gotcha, but I always ask an author to give me the favorite character in his or her book. And you know, yes, I'm asking you, who is your favorite child? Uh, I'm I'm going to tell you what my favorite story is. All right, that's that's fine. Lois Goforth. She was the she was uh, she was the pregnant young wife on Pearl Harbor. Uh, they uh, wanted to evacuate all the women and children as quickly as, the, as they could, so they got a ship and they loaded all of the pregnant women and their children onto a ship to send them back to San Francisco. And they got back to San Francisco, and all the women lined up on the rail to see land because they had been at sea for a couple of weeks. And they noticed that along the dock they had lined up bassinets anticipating that some of these women would have given birth during the, during the, uh, during the trip over. And uh, a, a reporter for the San Francisco, one of the San Francisco papers, took a, a, a picture of these women, pregnant women, coming down the gangplank with these bassinets on the dock. And uh, when the story came out the next day, one of the quotes in the story was, well, I guess we know now why they caught us with our pants down at Pearl Harbor. And to hear this 88-year-old woman from Aiken tell this story is absolutely hilarious. I love that. And by the way, did did she give birth en en route? Or obviously some women must have. No, it was afterwards. It was was afterwards. Well, the the memories of this particular tape, you have talked about European theater, but we now have moved to the Pacific theater. And obviously with that that story, wait, I'm going to go back to you. What about one of these stories from the Pacific theater that... Well, we hear about Pearl Harbor so much, um, and again, reflecting some of the 
you know, comments from the younger uh, staff that work on the show. What they don't realize was that Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor itself wasn't the lone target mm-hmm. in that period of time. Um, you know, within 48 hours, the Philippines was attacked. And two of the gentlemen, Guy Wright and Ben Scarden, were at the Philippines. Uh, ben eventually part of the Bataan Death March and Guy Wright at Corregidor were both taken prisoner uh, and we begin their story um, and we'll continue it into the next episode of them being held as prisoners of war by the Japanese during World War II. MacArthur was ordered by the President of the United States that he had to evacuate the island in early March of 42. Just after General MacArthur left, he had a leaflet delivered to everybody, and the leaflet said he has been ordered by the president to leave. And the last thing said, may the halo of Jesus Christ be upon each and every one of you. You just had a feeling that, that, you know, you were were left for the slaughter. Corregidor is forced to surrender. Our commander, General Wainwright, making terms. Isolated, short of food, medicine, and munitions, They could hold out no longer and are prisoners of the Japs, our men facing death and wounds and this. On the day that uh, Cregador surrendered, they lined everybody up and uh, marched the Japanese troops through and and the the Marines had uh, stacked their rifles prior to that. And uh, that was it. We were captured and and, uh, uh, there was no no terror in us. It, it was, uh, of course, we didn't know what to expect. One of the things that could be part of this story in the future is we all know on the West Coast that Japanese Americans were interned. There was a Japanese American family here in Colombia, the Tokanagas, and it is my understanding that Colombia's finest citizens stood up and said, basically spoke for these folks and said they're not going to be interned. Now, there are descendants of the Tokanagas in town. I don't know if anybody from that particular generation, but they would have the family stories. But this is something um, in the neighborhood that I live in, the Tokanagas house just right around the corner, and that's one of the first stories I heard when I moved in in the 1970s is the Tokanagas stayed there, and that was because Colombians stood up and said, these are our folks which reminds me that y'all need some more folks to come forward, right? Absolutely. Uh, we're moving into the war in the Pacific now, and we have we have some needs, and, and I hope your listeners can help us out. Uh, we'd love to have veterans who participated in the Battle of Midway, uh, the Coral Sea, Guadalcanal, and particularly B-29 crew members. I think a big part of the, the war in the Pacific was the air war. You know, everybody knows about raising the flag on Iwo Jima, Mm -hmm. but there was a reason they raised the flag on Iwo Jima, so they would have an air base so uh, so, so that the uh, B-29s coming back from bombing Japan would have a place to land in case of an emergency. And we just don't have uh, that many uh, uh, veterans who participated in the air war in the Pacific. So if they could, uh, if there are some veterans out there that we could interview or or if some of your listeners know veterans that we could interview, if they could get in touch with me at the state newspaper or you here at ETV, uh, please do, because uh, that, that's a chapter of, of uh, World War II that we really need to document. Yes, uh, and Alfred Turner, the producer of the, of the show, will have that. You can come in through the ETV website to the journal, and if you write in either as a veteran or a family member saying, Daddy, Uncle Jack, whoever, has a story about World War II and give us the contact information, we'll pass this on to, to Jeff and, and, and Wade. And one other way they can contact us, uh, we've finally set up our website, which the South Carolinians in World War II website, which is very easy to get to. It's uh, scww2, the number two, dot com. And there is a little link there as well uh, where they can email us and tell us about their father or grandfather, grandmother or mother who served. And, and actually, we will have a link to your website from, from our website. But I, I think it's important that you, that you mentioned um, 
the grandmothers and because it wasn't just the nurses in the Pacific. You also had WACs and WAVES, Women's Army Corps, uh, and in, in, in the Navy. And women may not supposed to be in combat, but like the case of Juanita Redmond, she was a nurse on Corregidor, and she was involved in, the, in a combat zone. And this happened continually throughout the war. One thing I'll follow up on what you said, Jeff. Let's be sure not to limit it to B-29s. They came in late in the war. We've got B-24s, B-17s, all the fighter pilots, the torpedo bombers, land-based and carrier-based. And, of course, we all are very familiar with the B-24 now because uh, Laura Hillenbrand's bestseller, uh, Unbroken. Um, But we need air crews Mm -hmm. on all types of aircraft uh, because that is a part that we really don't have enough coverage also, uh, I should have mentioned CBI, China, Burma, India. Right. Uh, that is, uh, that is a um, um, theater of the war that a lot of people aren't familiar with. You know, uh, bombing crews in Europe uh, had a number they had to meet. That number often went up, but 30 missions and you got to go home. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case in, in China and Burma and India. The guys that flew there flew until the war was over. They were dead. And, uh, and, and we really, really want to interview uh, guys that, that participated in that theater. And speaking of the, of the, of the Pacific Theater, uh, I, I guess most folks who go through the Columbia Airport realize that uh, Jimmy Doolittle's Raiders were trained right here, uh, 30 seconds over Tokyo, at the Columbia Army Air Base, which is now the Columbia Metropolitan Airport. Yep. The, 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 all 80 men volunteered for a dangerous mission overseas. They didn't know what it was. And we have had um, uh, the privilege of interviewing a, a couple of uh, the Raiders for our series. Wade, this is now your fifth episode. You've got two more planned. And you started out, you're relatively young, unlike <laughs> John and me. <laughs> how, how has this, what kind of impact has this series had on you personally? Going through the stories uh, of these gentlemen, it has brought me more into uh, the present and the current situations that our country is involved in, and just uh, having more of a connection with, or more of a thoughtful you know, discussion inside my own head about how we've changed mm-hmm. in uh, the ways we deal with military conflicts and how things are going to change in the future. Okay. I think, let me follow that just a minute. In World War II, most everybody was involved. And when the war was over, if you weren't involved, there was a price to pay. There was this little um, emblem that they wore in the lapels. uh, And a lot of men wore it, and it it showed that they were veterans. Mm -hmm. It was difficult to get a job after the Second World War if you weren't a veteran. Mm-hmm. because the finger was always pointed. Where were you when we needed you? Mm-hmm. And that, that really occurred. And if you fast forward today, the problem we have in our society is there's a very thin sliver of the American population that's involved even indirectly in the wars that we've had going on in Afghanistan and Iraq now for some 10 years. I've heard it as low as 1%. I don't know that to be true or not. But it's very small because it's an all-volunteer army. You were mentioned groups that, that you would like to get and, and one that you didn't mention. All I can think about is that great movie about World War II, Mr. Roberts. There were a lot of folks who were in the Navy who were in supply ships who provided the beans and the ammo that made possible the landings on Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. So anybody who served in the Pacific Theater, you would like to have his or her story. Oh yeah, uh, we're we're not we're not excluding anyone. We're just telling you where where we got uh, where we really need some folks. Well, but, I just have to. I mean, Mr. Roberts is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I just I just happened to. You know, we love stories about ice cream and SOS. So, and don't forget the importance of submarines in the Pacific Theater. We had a submarine on this particular show. All right. Tell us. He was an engineer. He was at, Tom Ryan was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked, and he was in uh, the fire room, I believe, and there was a lot more commotion than usual. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, when he went up top, he noticed hundreds of men in the water swimming and saw the zeros flying overhead and was completely uh, shocked at what went on. I mean, that's one of the great things about the episode, um, especially with Pearl Harbor and the interviews that we've collected since. You know, we have two women who are at home. We have two gentlemen in the mess hall um, recuperating from their night out. Uh, we have uh, one gentleman in the water. We have Bronson Metz, who was... Uh, standing post and witness the planes flying through Colicola Pass. It's a comprehensive picture of uh, from all over the island of the destruction that the Japanese handed that fleet. Okay. All right, gentlemen, Alfred's giving me the wind-up signal. John Rainey, the executive producer, Jeff Wilkinson, the producer and reporter for the state newspaper, and Wade Sellers, the director of South Carolinians in World War II, Episode 5. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. South Carolinians in World War II is an incredible series that South Carolina ETV is producing, and we here at ETV Radio are proud to be a part of that as well. The greatest generation, as folks have described, the men and women of World War II, are quickly becoming the vanishing generation. That's why this particular series is so important, because it's capturing the memories of those who were involved in what Studs Terkel referred to as the Good War. All of these stories are important, not just for now, but for future generations. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next week on The Journal, my guest will be Greg Johnsman from Edisto Island, who is the proprietor of Geechee Boy Mill and Market and produces the world-famous Geechee Boy Grits. Milling can be done with modern equipment, but the problem is, in my opinion, and I guess I have to say my opinion is, things that we do today we like to do in a faster manner, and the faster manner isn't always the right way. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal each Friday at noon here on ETV Radio.